Good morning, everybody. You know, I was at, thank you, John. I was at 33 last night preaching, and I said, I said, hello, everybody. And I had like one person reply. And I said, you know, at the South, they just shout morning to me. And then I went, oh, actually, that's not technically true. But in my mind, that's what happens. So uh, one morning, you'll all gang up and give it some when I say uh, good morning. My name is Glenn, and I'm the pastor and, uh, of Willow Park Church South. And it's my joy to bring God's word to you this morning as it is most weeks, and um, I'm very, very grateful. That song we just, uh, we just heard, um, just so you know, the guy with the really high voice, that's kind of my pitch when I sing. You can come and sit by me in the front, and you'll, you'll experience that. Um, <laughs> Mary, did you know? You know, I, I don't actually think she had a true glimpse of what was in store for her over those 33 years, and, um, you know, we all have... Uh, mums in our lives, precious uh, mums who do an amazing job with their children. But I, I wonder, she got a glimpse at the beginning, and we're going to look at that this morning. Um, it says, and, and we'll turn to it later, but there's a scripture in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, that says that she treasured up all these things and pondered them. This is young teenage Mary. She was treasured up. Everything that had happened in the first two chapters of Luke, which is actually longer than just Christmas Day, she pondered them and thought them through. And then I think about Mary watching her son being taken away to, to his death. Like the mom's heart must have just been breaking. She's an amazing young lady, Mary. And uh, I think we do her some disservice sometimes in the evangelical churches because we were, uh, were so afraid of giving her too much honor in case we suddenly become Catholic by accident or something. And, 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 that, and that's not going to happen. Mary is an amazing young woman. We're going to see in a second that the, the archangel Gabriel actually calls her favored. Um, she could have been aged anywhere between 14 years old and 17 years old just a teenager, and yet favored with God. The young people in the room, do you walk in that favor? Um, it's such an amazing time of year to remember this. I want to read the scripture to you from Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through uh, to a few verses. Then we're going to walk through this passage. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me, or you can turn it on on your mobile device. And uh, we don't have the... Um, we don't have you version working this morning, but uh, you can follow along. Corey was busy typing these things in this morning because it didn't quite work the way we hoped. So good job, Corey. Um, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings. There it is. Oh, Favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You have found favor with God. Mary was afraid. Last week, and I encourage you to listen to the message, if you weren't able to join us last week, we were looking at how the shepherds were afraid. And they were afraid because they'd been exposed by God. And when God turns up, we get a real clear insight as to who we are and who God is. And, and the shepherds were afraid. Mary was afraid for a different reason. What was it that Mary was afraid of? Well, Luke is really clear. It says that it's his words troubled her. 
See, now, I, I thought about this. I thought, I wonder what it would have been like for Mary to have the archangel Gabriel to turn up at, in all his glory. Now, let me just say, without giving you a whole sermon about angels, and maybe I should do that one morning, angels in the Bible are not little flying naked babies with harps and little bows and arrows like we see on the front of cards. They're not. They're not those little cute little things with little dresses and, and just harpsichords. And the, the angels of the Bible are warriors. They're God's messengers. And the people who have been fortunate enough in the Bible and also in, since the Bible began to see angels, they are usually very tall, very powerful looking, very frightening looking messengers of God. God would not send a little baby angel to, to Mary. So get that out of your mind. This is, a, this is an image that would have been frightening in of itself. But Mary, Luke says, was not troubled so much about the angel as much as what the angel said. Because look at the scripture, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And then the angel says, Gabriel says, do not be afraid, Mary, and then goes on. And we're going to pull this part a little bit, but I'm sure what would have gone through Mary's mind as she is, she is exposed to this angel and the, and the message the angel gives is, why me? I, I'm just this teenage girl from a back-end town. I'm engaged to be married to Joseph, and Joseph would probably be training as a carpenter at the time. There's nothing special about Mary. There's nothing significant about Mary. I love the way that God in the Bible approaches women. There's a lifting up of women in the Bible, which is completely contrary to the culture at that time. There's an honoring. Even in Jesus' genealogy, you will see time and time again, ladies of the Bible being mentioned in an honoring way. And God chooses this teenage girl to be the fulcrum of his plan that the whole of the Bible speaks to for thousands of years before Mary, and it hinges on her. I love, and we're going to look at this in a minute, but I love the way that the plan of God in such infinite and eternal ways, is all pulling together to this one moment. Can you imagine how excited Gabriel was? I'm sure if God said, okay, which, which angels is going to go and tell Mary? Be me, pick me, pick me. Because everything was terminating on this moment. Mary, you're favored. And boy, have we got a plan for you. That's not what he actually said, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing. There must have been great excitement. Mary's answer as to why her comes in verse 31. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. I love that name, Jesus. I love that we're in a church that is unapologetic and unashamed to preach each week, whether it's here or at 33 or Glenmore in Lake Country, the powerful name of Jesus. Even saying the name Jesus from this pulpit makes me feel good. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Mary's got a good point. You know, uh, Gabriel, I don't know if you know about all these kind of things. I don't know what kind of conversations you have up there in heaven. But I'm a virgin, and virgins don't generally give birth to babies. There's a little bit of doubt there, right? Understandable doubt. 
I mean, he's very, she's very gentle. I'm pretty sure if that was to happen in modern day, the words wouldn't be quite as sure and steady as the ones I've just read. How will this be since I am a virgin? I reckon there'd be a whole lot of other words attached to that in horror and shock. How is this going to be? This is Mary doubting God. I want three points this morning to ring true. Three things that we can see in the story of Mary that are an example to us. And the first one is that we need to emulate the way that Mary doubted. Let me say that again because some of you might have gone, hang on a second, that, that can't be right. We need to emulate, we need to see the example Mary sets in how she doubted God. In Luke chapter 1, we have this, this guy called Zacharias, and it's, and it's worth actually reading about Zacharias. He was a high priest, and the angel Gabriel appears to Zacharias and announces that his wife, Elizabeth, is going to give birth to John the Baptist. Zacharias' reaction to the angel is, and I'm paraphrasing, you can read it, I'm paraphrasing, that how on earth is this going to happen, Gabriel? Look, And he says this, he's he's a top guy, top-notch, gentlemanly guy, because he says this, look, I'm old, but have you seen my wife? She's really old. You read it. I'm really old, she's past it. I mean, thanks, Zacharias, big birthday Christmas present coming your way, not. He he has this immediate reaction of, are you kidding me? There's no way this is going to happen, because look at me, and look at her, and I'm sorry, this is crazy, and the result of that is, the result of Zacharias's doubt is really interesting, very different from Mary's. He's given a nine-month timeout. Okay, you no longer talk for nine months, and go and sit in the corner and think about what you just did. <laughs> for nine months, I started to think about, who would I like to give a nine-month timeout to? And I thought, no, I've got to carry on with my sermon. I can't go down that rabbit trail. He had a nine-month timeout. Nine months of being muted. I mean, talk about being sheepish. Talk about being corrected. Talk about being reminded of the power of God in a very real way. You doubt me, you no longer talk. Again, I just go down this rabbit trail of what it would be like as a dad to, you doubt me, you disagree. No more. Selah, let's just pause and see Zacharias doubted like many of us doubt. And perhaps you doubt. He doubted from a position of unbelief, of cynicism, of knowing better. He was resolute in his thoughts. His experience said better than what God was saying. Therefore, he doubted in a way that was saturated with unbelief and cynicism and skepticism. And so Mary has a different reaction from Gabriel. It's not like Gabriel had a bad day with Zacharias and then had a better day with Mary. That, you know, it's not like he'd been up all night with Zacharias with the flying naked baby angels or something, and they'd kept him up all night and he was grumpy and kind of got over it, had a good night's sleep with Mary, and so he was feeling calmer. That's not the way it worked. You see, Zacharias was disciplined because of the approach that he had to God, was cynical, skeptical, and unbelieving. And friends, Even this Christmas time, I love you, but it's the truth. You and I can be the same. Some of you are even considering this whole thing about Christianity. Maybe you're here this morning just because you're visiting family, and you're like, you know what? I don't believe this whole thing about Jesus. I'm not sure about it. And what you're doing is you're doubting like Zacharias, if you're not careful. 
See, if we can come to God in such a way like Mary did, and I'm going to show you in a second, with doubts, there's nothing wrong with having doubts as long as you come in the right heart and the right frame of mind. Because if you come with pride thinking you know better, and in my experience, then really you could start unpacking the possibilities of saying, you know what, God, you are not able. I've said this many times from the pulpits. It makes me smile when atheists and skeptics or agnostics or especially atheists say, there is no God. You see, now that is a doubt founded in a belief that they have of a cynicism and skepticism about a set of beliefs that you and I have based on the Bible. But even the statement of saying there is no God is such a definitive statement that you actually need to have full knowledge of all things to be able to say for sure that there is no God. Am I right? You need to know all things to know that there is no God, thereby making yourself the very thing that God claims to be, which is all-knowing. So you really all know everything to be able to be grounded on a belief that you are so sure that you can say, there is no God. This whole thing is ridiculous. Be really careful with that. Because you don't actually know everything. And just because it is outside of our experience does not mean to say that it can't be true. There are many things outside of my experience that are actually true just because I don't understand them. And I've used this illustration before, but I've never been like Mark and Renee Culhor are in Australia right now experiencing Christmas in the 110 degrees or whatever it is that the Australians enjoy. I've never been to Australia, so therefore it does not exist. I've never seen it with my own eyes. Prove it. Well, Glenn, that's ridiculous. Well, same logic. I have a choice. I choose to believe it this way. Therefore, you have to prove to me that Australia exists because I've never seen it. And by the way, I'm not willing to get on a plane, and I'm not going to read any books about Australia, and I'm not going to experience anything through Australia. Don't even make me think about going to church and think about God, or read any books about God, or experience God. I'm just going to sit here from a distance and go, no, it doesn't exist, and I'm going to close my eyes, because when I close my eyes, everything goes invisible, including me, which is what I believed when I was a kid. Even more invisible if you hold your breath. Really invisible. Same logic. I know Australia exists because Britain for hundreds of years needed a place to send all our crazy people. And look what happened. You only need to visit Big White for five minutes to see the result of that, right? Amen? You've got lots to thank Britain for, I tell you. Be very careful with doubt that is based on unbelief and on your experience. That was Zacharias, and he got disciplined for it. He got slapped around by the Gabriel. And then Gabe comes along to Mary, and Mary has some, um, some doubt, and she has some fear. But she has a whole different motivation. She, she has a motivation with, I don't know how this is possible, but you are God. You can do all things. It says later on that she rejoices. Her heart motivation is different. And her searching and her seeking out results in an answer from God that is unbelievable. Mary, all things are possible. Your cousin is already pregnant. What? She's so old. How is that even possible? All things are possible, Mary. See, she gets an answer from her doubt because her doubt results in her searching and inquiring with an open heart. Please hear that. 
she receives a profound answer because she is willing to take her doubt, not just sit there with a cynicism and a skepticism, well, it can't be that way, but she's actually willing to ask the question, how can this be? So those of us who have struggles maybe with belief and Christianity, I would suggest to you that you you search. You look into, you talk to some of the people who are sat in this room who have had Jesus radically change their lives. Complete turnarounds in ways that really are unanswerable to anything our culture can give. You're not going to find it in a self-help book. Complete change of lives. Research. Christians. Be very careful when you read the Bible and you go, well, this scripture can't mean that because that is outside of my experience. That's Zacharias doubt. Is it possible that God can write something through his people in the Bible that we might not agree with and we might find difficult, but if we actually put some time aside and research and pray through and maybe have a couple of sleepless nights, that we find out that our initial thoughts about scripture might be wrong. And there are some big tensions in the Bible, ones that have kept me awake. There's some theology and doctrine that we can't dismiss just because it doesn't make sense. Doctrines, for example, the really big one would be like the doctrine of election or predestination. You take one read of Romans chapter 9, what are you going to do? Rip that chapter out because I don't get it? That's, well, Australia doesn't exist. Maybe there's more for us to discover as we openly, like Mary, research and search with an open heart and a willing heart that perhaps we'll find out that we are in the wrong. That we might be wrong about our beliefs and God may correct that. I like what Timothy Keller says. He says, be skeptical of your skepticism. I would add to that and say, be cynical of your cynicism. Be doubtful of your doubts. Just have an open mind and an open heart and an open hand perhaps to the things of God that maybe there is something that can do what he says he can do in the Bible. So Mary asked a question and she got an amazing answer. So we need to doubt like Mary. Secondly, we need to rejoice like Mary. You see this beautiful scripture that follows this is called Mary's Magnificat, her song. She's just so excited that she bursts out in song. And this song is filled with prophetic uh, statements that, remember, she's a teenage girl. She's not this scholar or deep theologian. She is captured and given a revelation of herself and God. And she sees that she has a Savior coming. What is it that made her so happy? Is it that she got more money getting what she wanted, you know, her favorite parking spot at the mall, these, these things that, that perhaps make us happy. Think about what was happening to Mary. She had no husband, and she's pregnant. That's a death sentence. That is definitely a sentence to extreme poverty in that culture because you get rejected. Under deep shame, you get rejected. So she's had this death sentence over her life. She has a husband that is, or husband-to-be that is likely to reject her once he finds out that she's pregnant. She's got this extreme poverty, ruined reputation, and death sentence. So naturally, her response is to kick over a chair and go, yeah, God. What actually happened is that she had a revelation, as we'll see in verse 31, that she was going to give birth to a son. A son 
Gabriel says, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. You know, for some of us, we get so caught up in what is going on in our own lives that we only rejoice on certain contingencies being in place. We'll only praise him if certain things are lining up. We'll only be thankful if certain things are being given to us by God. It's somehow that we feel that we have God on a line, that God will, will he'll deserve my praise in worship on a Sunday if I'm feeling this certain way and if these parameters are met. Mary doesn't have that. Mary's rejoicing is purely on the fact that she is going to have a son and his name is going to be Jesus. She received a revelation. She received a revelation, if you read her Magnificat, a revelation of what her real problem was. Because her real problem wasn't poverty or lack of reputation or Joseph maybe rejecting her. Her real problem was that she was sinful. She needed saving. She needed a savior. This is one of the things I love about Christianity. And I often get asked what sets Christianity apart from other religions and what makes Christianity so special. What is it that you think you've got that other religions don't have? Christianity is not a set of rules or even teachings to follow. It's a person. You see, you, you look at any other religion in the world. Let's just take Buddhism, for example. Buddhism is a set of teaching represented by Buddha. Buddha is not the central aspect that people worship. He's just the messenger, Buddhists would believe. You take Islam, Muhammad is the messenger of a set of teaching that they believe if you follow this set of teaching, then you will be enlightened and you will, you will have everything that Allah says is, is owing and you deserve. See, See, Muhammad is not the focal point. Buddha is not the focal point. You take Hindus. Hindus have many, many, many gods. It's a set of teaching, and they have these enlightened people who came and gave these teachings. It's the teaching that is the central aspect because they say if you follow these teachings, you can look at anything. You look at some cults, Mormonism or JWs, then it's all about a messenger of God bringing a set of teaching. That If you follow this set of teaching, then you will be enlightened and you will have something you don't have right now. Christianity is not that way. Christianity is not about a set of teaching that you must do in order for you to receive. Christianity is about a person who came and did so you don't have to do. That we do the things that we're asked to do because we love him, not in order to receive his love. You see, Christianity is about Jesus. It depends on a person, not a set of teaching. The whole of Jesus' life, all the gospels are just preambles. They skim over his life to the focal point, which is the cross. That's his whole life, is the cross, his mission. You, I can take it back further. You take the whole Bible, it's all to do with the cross. That was his mission. He came and he lived and he died to take the punishment that you and I don't, so that we, you and I don't have to, that we truly deserve. But why does God have to punish us, Glenn? We don't have any problem with the idea of justice when it comes to us getting justice. We don't have any problem in our society with somebody receiving a punishment just deserves when they have done something wrong, especially if it's something wrong against me. You take that guy and you throw the key away. But when it's me that is in the dock 
And it's me that has sinned, and it's me that has actually done stuff wrong. And it's me who has sinned against others and against God. And it's me that has committed certain sins in life and omitted certain things in life. When it's me in the dock, then we don't like the idea of justice. But God is a perfect God. And he would be not a perfect God if he was not a just God. And so something needs to be punished. Someone needs to be punished for your sin and your actions and your thoughts and your decisions and your shame. All that needs to be punished. Otherwise, God would not be just. And if you are questioning the idea of whether God is a just God, you only need to see the thread that is in each one of us where we desire justice. Justice is a good thing. At times, you think about it, justice is a loving thing. God is just. Jesus, he came and he said, I will die and take your punishment so you don't have to. And then I will give you my right standing, righteousness, you can have that. And all you have to do is receive this gift. All you have to do is believe. You don't have to do this set of teaching because let's be honest, we're really rubbish at life, aren't we? I, I took chemistry for two years at O-level in, in, in Britain. And uh, for three years, I went, to, I went to lots of different schools. But for three years, my favorite school was the Catholic school I went to. Uh, called St. Mary's, and I took my two girls to, uh, to St. Mary's last, uh, last summer to visit, and it's just been knocked down, and it's a housing estate, and it actually made me feel really sad, and we just found this one rock that was near the school gates that obviously was probably too big, probably goes all the way down to Australia, I don't know, but that I used to sit on and wait for my dad, and that's still there, and so we took a picture, and it took a lump in my throat. I have some good memories of that school, because for me, school was about us having as much fun as I possibly could which is not really what school's about, I realize now, but chemistry class with Father McCarthy was one of my favorite classes because he, was, he just seemed to let us get away with all sorts of different stuff. And um, on report card season, he'd heard that I wanted, I don't know whether you knew this and the other doctors in the house, but I, I wanted to be a doctor. He heard that. And he wrote in my report, and I hope my mom and dad have still got it, heard that Glenn wants to be a doctor no chance. It's true. So you can imagine my dad was like, what's this? So the next exam, I worked so hard. I was like, right, I'm going to show this guy because it was working. He's not that daft, was he? He was like, I'm kidding. So I worked really hard. I got a great mark, probably in the high 20% or something like that. I don't know. No, it was, it was a decent mark. And in my next report, he wrote, and this is true, miracle question mark? I don't know if you could get away with comments like that as a teacher now. There would have been no point in my understanding of chemistry for me to have done in Britain, and still it's nice, called A-level chemistry. You do O-level chemistry, then you do A-level chemistry, then you do university-level kind of crazy chemistry. I, I would have no chance to do this if I can't do that. Our life is the same. We can't do the basics. Our world is broken. We don't get the simple stuff right. We can't even look after the people who need looking after. We can't even look after the unborn. So how is it that we think more teaching is going to help that? That if we can just learn how to do life better, 
then no, because we've tried and tried and we've thrown money and politics and war and, and, and brilliant minds and, and social justice and all sorts of things. We've thrown it at this problem and it's never solved the problem because the problem isn't it. The problem is me, my heart, my issues. Mary rejoiced because she saw that Jesus was the savior of me and you and her. It's not a they should do this. No, you need changing. Well, if we got a different government in, you know as I do, you put any other stack of people into that, it's not going to make any difference at all in the long run because the issue is the heart, right? Now, just say that Christians shouldn't be involved. I think we should be involved in big issues. Don't hear me wrong, but that is not the answer. Jesus is the answer. See, the gospel is good news, not good advice. And the good news is that Jesus Christ came to die the death that you deserve to die so that you could receive the life that you don't deserve to have so you can go into the city and into the community and make the difference that no one else can make. Not because of a set of teaching, but because of a person hanging on a cross. That's the message of Christmas. Gospel means good news. This is good news. It's not good teaching. The angel didn't come and go, good, Mary, Good teaching is coming your way. He didn't do that. He says, Mary, good news. Shepherds, good news of great joy. There's a man coming and his name is Jesus and he's going to be the son of God and he's going to sit on the throne of David. And to the Jewish people, the throne of David represented peace and shalom. He's going to bring peace. We don't need more teaching. We can't cope with the basic chemistry that we've got. It does take a miracle. The miracle of Jesus. They needed something different. We need something different. And his name is Jesus. Thirdly, so first of all, we need to doubt like Mary. Secondly, we need to rejoice like Mary. And thirdly, we need to surrender like Mary. The angel brought good news, but he also demanded complete surrender. He didn't say, hey, Mary, there's parts of this story that you can jump into and be committed to. But there's other parts. We'll just let you decide whether or not you want to be involved. You know, Mary, if you want to be 60% pregnant, we're okay with that. You can keep 40%. You do your own thing. But as long as you just kind of have this little section for baby Jesus, then we'll be okay. No. It's complete surrender. Mary, you've got to be all in. Oh, and by the way, Mary, you don't even get to name your own child. Does she? Uh, his name's Jesus. What I'd like to call him Zach. No, nope, Jesus. Josh is really popular right now. No, nope, Jesus. She just says, okay. By the way, if you want a really good list of potential baby names for those of you who are expecting babies, Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy of Jesus. It's fantastic. You could just choose a name there, put it as a middle name in the kid's life, and giggle for the rest of your life. And they go, why did you call me this? Verse 38, Mary says this, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Have you ever prayed that? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, God. Let it be to me according to your plan. Let it be to me according to your ways. And if what I want comes second, then because you love me so much, I trust you. 
See, people approach the Bible and they say, Christianity is just a bunch of rules. I approach the world and go, the world is a bunch of rules. If you don't look this way, sound this way, listen to this music, drive that car, live in that neighborhood, have this husband or that husband or that wife, then you get rejected. That sounds like a lot of rules to me. Whereas the only rule is to make Jesus number one in your life. And then everything else you want to do anyway. It's freedom. You see, God is more than capable of guiding and planning Mary's life and our lives. He controls nations. He can look after us. You know, one of my favorite things that I noticed this year as I'm studying uh, this scripture is why didn't God just come to Mary or send Gabriel, uh, sorry, to Joseph and say, okay, Joe, pack up your stuff, get to Bethlehem. Why didn't he do that? Instead, what God does is he puts it into the mind of some Roman leader that they're going to collect taxes and they're going to have a census. And this census will include everybody going to their hometown. And so Joseph, who is part of God's plan, has to go to Bethlehem in order to go to the census. And Bethlehem, the last time Bethlehem had any kind of notice at all was when David, King David, was there. And so this non-town suddenly becomes the focus of God because of all the prophecies Why didn't God just say, hey, get yourself to Bethlehem? Instead, he moves nations to bring about one young man and one young woman to get to his town. I love that. For every one or two things that you see God working in your life, there are 10, 20,000 other things that are unseen that he's working in you, outside of you, in people on the other side of the world that you don't even know yet moving and changing and making nations. How many of you remember the Berlin Wall coming down? How quick was that? Like overnight, God can change nations. It's unbelievable. Be encouraged, Christians, that as we look at this world that seems to be decaying, all God needs to do is sneeze in the right direction and his, his plan comes about. I don't, know if, I don't know if that's theologically true, but you understand what I mean. It's nothing to God to move whole nations for him to bring about something just in your life. He did it with Mary. Be encouraged that God's plan is perfect. He knows what he's doing. And if he can move nations, I think he can handle you and your finances. I think he can handle you and your family. I think he can handle you and your dreams. That maybe us holding so tightly onto our life and not surrendering is kind of silly in comparison to God being able to move nations. I think he can handle you. And boy, friends, I'm preaching to myself here because I want to grab and I want to control and I want to hold. I think he can look after your children. I think he loves your children more than you love them. I know that they are his before they are yours. And I need to say an amen to that. Go to Bethlehem, Joseph. No, I'm going to have this beautiful plan in place. See, this is what Mary was pondering. This is what she was thinking about. This is what she was treasuring in her heart. See, Israel was so discouraged. They wanted a Messiah. They wanted a military leader. They wanted a new politician. They wanted everything that we think we need. What they really need was a savior and a savior that like Mary, we to surrender to and say, have your way. If we really understood the present reality of God's love, then we wouldn't be negotiating with God saying, well, God, you can have, you can have an hour and a half on a Sunday twice a month. Rest of the time, that's for me. That's not surrender. 
That's negotiation. That's not even negotiation. That's The Bible actually says, don't like this word, but it's true. It's called rebellion. If we just section off a p- section of our life going, well, that's for God and this rest of it is for me, then that's rebellion because it's all his. All of it. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 19, as we just draw this to a close, it says that Mary pondered all these things in her heart. As we approach Christmas, I want to encourage you to do something. Get up a little bit earlier. Put the coffee on, or whatever that looks like for you. Put the lights on. Make the place feel cozy. Get your Bible, get your journal. Plug in if you have to, whatever it looks like for you. And ponder and treasure this story. Imagine... A distant relative leaves you some money. And you assume that she's left you a few hundred bucks. And so you don't really take the time to go and look and find out. Because you just make an assumption. You don't investigate it. And your distance and your assumption and your laziness and your apathy actually results in you never discovering that she has left you several hundred million dollars. But your apathy and like, meh, I've got other things to focus on. I've got other priorities. You never find that out. You sit there in complete ignorance. You had all this fortune, all this time, but didn't live like it. Didn't consider it. Christians, that's Christmas for us. That we have been given a fortune upon fortune. There is no monetary value that compares to what you as a Christian have been given in the heavenlies and in this life. That heaven can start here and carry on into eternity. Heaven is not something we are waiting for. It's something that starts here. It's something that we can experience on a daily basis. Maybe the circumstances aren't heavenly, but the person in the circumstances is experiencing that heaven. You can ponder that. That's a treasure that we have. And yet sometimes our apathy and cynicism and skepticism distances ourselves because we can't be bothered to sit and ponder and investigate and research and praise and enjoy and talk about. I want to encourage you this Christmas time to ponder on the work of Jesus, to ponder the story. Ask God to help us know what we already think we know. And you'll see that your pain and your disappointments get swallowed up in the hope of Jesus. And then like Mary, you can finish and say, For, I, want, I want us to read this scripture as I, as I read it. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What an adventure Mary went on. It was painful, it was sorrow-filled, but rejoicing, rejoicing as she went. Have you received Christ as your Savior? Have you surrendered your life to Him? The Bible says to all those who would receive it, that God initiates this, this, this draw to him, this, this love pull towards him, that one day you suddenly started thinking about the possibility of God. Where did that come from? It came from God. It came from God appearing to you just like he appeared to Mary. 
Somehow, and this is where the mystery kicks in, there's this point where we surrender. Have you surrendered? Because all that is on offer to Mary is in offer to you if you surrender. And I'm going to pray that as Christians and as those people who are still searching, that this Christmas time we would surrender and receive the beautiful gift that is on offer in Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you. Lord, I'm so grateful that your word is so rich that even these stories that we think we know so well are so saturated with your encouragement and your love and your plan. And Lord, I pray that as a church family and those who may be visiting in town for a few days or whatever it might look like, that Lord, that we would be able to treasure and ponder this story. That Lord, it would ignite a a, a fire, a, a, a desire to seek, a desire to learn, a desire to submit and surrender and pray that God, these precious moments with our family as we share and receive gifts, I thank you for those, Lord, but I thank you, God, that it's all possible because you first gave that gift of your son, Jesus, to me. Lord, I pray that that would just become technicolor in our lives. That, Lord, as we enjoy the lights outside, we'd be able to sense and enjoy the light inside that can come only from you. And Lord, I pray that as we move into Christmas Eve and and we have a service here, Lord, I pray that by your power and by your strength, that God, that people would come to know you as they examine themselves in the light of your glory and your grace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.